Welcome to the very first episode of TPR Talks, a regular series from the Pensions Regulator discussing the important issues affecting pension schemes and trustees. I'm Dan Menhinet, Media Officer for TPR, and I'll be hosting this episode where my guests will be discussing pension scams. First, I'd like to introduce listeners to Nicola Parrish, Executive Director of Frontline Regulation, who earlier this month gave evidence to the Work and Pension Select Committee hearing on pension scams. Answering questions with Nicola is Margaret Snowden, Chair of the Pension Scams Industry Group. How are you both? Hi, Dan. Um, Really good, thank you. And thank you for inviting me to come and talk on this podcast. I'm really looking forward to it. And Margaret, how are you? I'm um, I'm good too, thanks very much. And it's um, it's nice to be here. Um, And it's really good that scams are still getting a lot of airtime. Really like that. So the Collect Sex Committee heard a lot of different views on the scale of UK pension fraud. Nicola, how is it that there are so many differing figures? Doesn't this make stopping scamming more difficult? Well, you're right. There are um, lots of different figures around pension scams. Um, And the reason there are so many different ones is that they are being collected in different places. But what we do know is that pension scams are underreported. And not knowing quite the right number for the scale of pension scams does make stopping scamming uh, a little bit more difficult. So, for example, we've got figures that range from uh, action fraud, which says 30 million. They've had 30 million pounds worth of scams reported into them over the last three years. That figure is quite different to a figure that we've heard from the Police Federation or even actually reported in through PSIC, the Pension Scams Industry Group. It's really important that the pensions industry do report these suspected scams and they need to report them in via action fraud. And really getting that clear understanding of the size of the problem and um, good quality intelligence will help in uh, how we formulate and what we do about pension scams. Margaret, would you agree? Do you think there are benefits to the industry as well as the saver to having a better understanding of the scale of the problem? Yeah, I I, I do think it's um, it's important that we understand the scale. I mean, I agree with what Nicholas said. It's it's not really helpful that we have so many ranges of potentials, and I would certainly love it to be at the bottom end um, rather than the the top end. But um, we can only go by what we see and what we know. Um, so while we can't actually be definitive. We could actually be underestimating by as much as 5,000%, and that's that's quite astonishing. But, um, you know, one of the things is we aren't entirely consistent about what a pension scam is. So some things might be included in one um, collection of stats and others might not be. But there are lots of reasons for under-reporting, um, partly because people don't report themselves if they've been scammed partly because they might not know or because it takes a long time um, to to work it out. Um, but um, schemes don't report, and, and I think that's what Nicola's um, getting at, schemes don't report because it's a, it's a bit of a hassle, um, but it's very, very important. And schemes think, well, they don't know that something's a scam um, until it actually is a scam. So 
what are the reporting? They're reporting um, a suspicion. I think we need to have a lot of um, a lot of tools um, to make it happen. But uh, as Nicola was suggesting, if if we have better information on the numbers, we'll get the resources, we'll get the attention, and we'll probably actually be able to persuade people that um, you know it is a big problem and they could be victims at the moment. People think it's only a few people that get affected. And you mentioned that um, there are a number of reasons why savers might not report. Um, they might not know the length of the time it, it takes for them to realise that they've been scammed. But isn't it also the case that sometimes they can be quite embarrassed about coming forward? Do you, Margaret, think that's a big barrier and can that be challenged? I, th- I think it's a barrier to victim reporting. Um, I, don't, I don't think there's any question if people are too embarrassed um, to report, they won't. But some some people don't want to report because they've heard that there might be tax consequences on top. So they, they kind of sometimes keep below the radar. Um, the tax problems affect a number of people, but not everyone. So um, so people need to understand a lot more. But, um, but yeah, I, th- I think it's a barrier. But, you know, schemes are the ones who see and suspect um, and I think we would get much richer information if, if schemes actually did reporting. Could, could I just come in there, Dan, on that point? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think Margaret's absolutely right that we um, we'll, we need the pensions industry to come forward and help us with this, and particularly with schemes, I mean, schemes reporting. And it is a bit of a hassle. So it's something that Project Bloom is looking at at the moment to try to improve just the mechanics of how that works to make it easier for the reporting to come through into action fraud. So we're, we are aware that it is um, it can be tricky, it can be a hassle to report in and we are doing what we can to make that as as simple and as straightforward and therefore to encourage reporting. Uh, We heard from the select committee that pension liberation fraud has been decreasing but that there's been an upward trend in investment fraud where pensions are thought to have been the source of those defrauded funds. Nicola do you think there's been too much emphasis on warning savers of risky transfers and not enough about risky investments, what they do with that money after it's been drawn down or transferred? Well, I I start by saying that um, whether we're talking about risky transfers or risky investments, we're talking about people's pension pots and we're talking about uh, people being scammed out of potentially a large amount of money, which makes a very big difference to their retirement. This has a really big impact on people. The warnings that we've been issuing through the Scam Smart campaign, and we've been doing it in, in uh, working alongside the Financial Conduct Authority, are relevant for both uh, pension scams, which will include people thinking about transferring out of their DB schemes, and also for sort of general investment fraud, by which I mean people who maybe have a pot of money, and rather than um, and they and they're just in, encouraged out of that pension scheme into some kind of investment fraud. So I think whatever the model, it's important that people can spot the signs of a scam and really important that a red light goes off in their head, red flashing light that says I need to get some guidance or some advice before I do anything here because I'm going to make a potentially life-changing decision, a decision that's going to have a really big impact on my quality of of life in retirement. Margaret, do you agree? Do you think we should be shifting away from talking about pension scams and talk more about investment scams? I think there's a, there's a great temptation 
to the for sweet pension scams um, under the carpet. At the end of the day, I'm not too precious, as long as we all understand what we're talking about. And I would hate, um, which I, I see happening, I would hate us to think that pension scams were no longer a problem. Um, and the problem was all about, you know, people using their own money to go and invest in, in something, um, which ends up not to be a very good investment. And, and that's an investment scam under certain circumstances. Um, under some, it's not. It's just making a bad um, decision. But um, but where we come from and, and what Nicola was alluding to is if the source of the money is somebody's pension, then it is a pension scam. And it's something that we need to be able to do something about because people losing, you know, sometimes the biggest bit of, you know, saving they've got is disastrous. If if people uh, engage in investment scams with money that's in addition to their pension saving, that's a slightly different different matter. So, so what I'm, I'm saying is let's not think that the pension assets are all safe because there's some that there's this thing called investment scamming going on that's much more serious um it's not yeah i, I completely agree with you on that margaret i think that's absolutely right and we there is a danger that pension scams get sort of put into the mix with other investment uh, scams. And, and for me, it's different. You don't have any time to make up the difference if you lose your pension pot just before you're about to retire. So uh, for me, it's important to keep that focus on pension scams. No, absolutely. Just just, just a little thing to add is, is we, we always say things like pension liberation is declining and investment scams are increasing. And it's, and it's very true, pension liberation is declining and that's for a reason. It's because it became a little bit harder, um, you know, to, to register a scheme. And it also, you know, the pension freedoms made it almost pointless to have pension liberation. But that doesn't mean pension scamming doesn't, you know, go on. And pension scamming involves transfers to SIPs and to SASIs, to QROPs to international SIPs, you know, we, we've got to really understand, you know, where all, the, where all the dangers are. Margaret, do you think these questions over the definition make much difference to the saver? Not really, but I do think the, the word either pension or retirement saving has to come into the mix, um, you know, so that people understand that what they've got in a pot is actually to try and see them through, you know, the rest of their lives. Um, and, you know, I think if we ignore that and just talk about investment, people think it's only rich people um, who invest. Um, Nicola, it, it's been mentioned that the definition of scams could be linked to whether there had been a criminal, regulatory or a civil breach in relation to a pension transaction. Do you think that's something that savers would see as important? I don't think that would be of much um, interest to savers, to be honest, how um, we might categorise the fact that they've lost all of their, their savings and haven't got any money for retirement. Uh, you can categorise the activities into criminal, um, in the way you described, into criminal, civil and regulatory. Uh, that's more of a technical issue about how you might, how a regulator, how a police force might respond to the particular behaviour or mischief that, that um, we're trying to tackle. 
And of course, not every situation is going to fall into just one of those buckets either. So some scenarios we've all, we, we've tackled already where you want to use your criminal powers to address one particular type of behaviour. You want to use your high court powers to address another, maybe to get some form of compensation. It's, it's rare, but it's possible. And then regulatory powers do something else again. So you might have a case that covers all three of those areas. Um, but in the end, that doesn't matter to the saver, does it? What, what you've called it and what category it fell into. What will matter is whether um, it's the fact they've lost their money and also whether they're going to get it back. Margaret, how do you think a trustee might react to that approach and, and what do you think about it? I, 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 I agree completely with um, <clears throat> Nicola on this point. I don't think how we classify it um, actually will make a big difference as long as we understand what sort of animal we're dealing with. You know, so it goes back to the defining um, a pension scam and what it is, what it looks like. Um, and some examples, I think that's more helpful to trustees um, than categorising. But I do think trustees are very keen to see people prosecuted, um, so so I think there would be there would be a, a sort of almost a, a sort of base response that says yeah they're all criminals and let's get them in jail, um, but it's it's much more nuanced than that really. Well, talking about uh, trustees' reactions, do you think that the industry is doing enough? TPR has recently launched its um, pledge to stop combat scams campaign, which asks trustees and administrators and providers to sign up to some basic principles on protecting savers. Do you think that the industry needs to do more here? Shall I, shall I take that question? Sure. Thank you, Nicola. I think the industry could really help and do, by doing more here. So you've mentioned already the uh, pledge campaign. Which is, a, which is, in my view, a really good bit of work between TPR and PSIG, where we are looking to the industry to ask them to sign up to the Code of Good Practice. And by signing up, they are saying they're committing to um, making sure they can spot the signs of a scam, making sure they have communicated that to all of their customers, so their customers are well informed. They're committing to carrying out due diligence in relation to transfers, and also importantly, to reporting in any suspicions they have of pension scams. So I think as many of, of, of the pensions industry that can sign up to that, the better. That's a really good start. There's also the fact that for uh, trustees, we've got a new module on our trustee toolkit that takes the trustee through the common signs of a scam and really explains what needs to be done if there are any suspicions around a pension scam that they come across. And then I think finally, um, there, there are some industries where we've seen some real innovation in tackling scams. And I would really like to see the pensions industry put its thinking cap on and come up with some new and innovative ideas to help us, to help us in Project Bloom to tackle pension scams. Yeah, Margaret, I would, what do you I would think? agree with that. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I mean, I, th I think the industry is probably in the best place um, 
to to deal with um, scams um, where it's money from a pension fund because it's it's the last point um, before the money actually goes and it goes into the hands of um, you know a, potentially a, a scammer. So, so I think the industry can do a lot more to stop it and the industry can do a lot more to report and help us get um, a proper intelligence. Um, and I think the the scams pledge is useful in a number of fronts. One, it does actually help to raise awareness and and it helps to encourage um, schemes and providers to to really think about the role they could play. Um, And and, and I think that the pledge is also a little bit like, um, you know, putting a burglar alarm on your house. Um, What it does is it makes burglars think, well, it's probably a bit risky um, trying to, you know, do anything in that house or move on to the next one. So people who sign up the pledge um, are showing to scammers that they're looking. Um, And I think that's important. The looking is important, but this being seen to be looking is is actually um, a lot more um, important, I think. So, uh, so, so, so yes, um, I think the industry can do a lot. Um, Nicola um, raised a point um, about the industry looking outside, and, and I think that is good. We should learn um, from people who have um, faced scams elsewhere because it's not just pensions. Um, it's universal and it's global. So we, we do need to, to look outside. Um, one thing we are exploring is a link into banking. Um, there's certainly a lot of lessons to be learned from banking um, and banking has taken a lot of steps to try and um, you know, have databases on scammers um, as well as very strong processes. So I think there's a lot we can learn but, but one um, key point is that um, every transaction goes through a bank um, so there, there must be a way we can include banks in what we do to try and protect people against pension scams. We know that the uh, Minister for Pensions is planning to write to 150 firms um, who are not sharing data with industry forum groups. Margaret, do you think that's a good idea? Um, I do. Um, I'm very supportive of that because, um, you know, we, we've been um, sort of trying to encourage schemes and providers to um, take part in anti-scamming activity um, since 2014. Um, and, you know, while lots do, there are lots who, who don't seem to be aware. So, so I think particularly for the larger organisations, I think um, a little bit of a nudge from the minister goes a long way. Um, and so I think if he does that, um, it'll be fantastic and, and people will sign up, hopefully sign up to the pledge and, um, and make sure that they're then following the principles of the PSIG code um, and a lot of the good practice that's set out in the code. Nicola, do you think a nudge is enough or should he uh, be considering naming and shaming those 150 firms? feels a bit early to be naming and shaming. I think a, a nudge is good. And we know that um, what, what it does is it, it really shines a spotlight on an issue when a minister starts writing out to firms and talking about the fact he's going to write to firms. So it does make things happen. So I, I'm supportive. I think it's a really good idea. Yeah, I think no, I, would, I would add as well that um, the pledge, as well as the PSIG code, um, is 
voluntary. Um, mm. So we're, we're asking people to do the right thing rather than, you know, sort of using the law or regulations to force them to do something. And um, so, so, you know, naming and shaming probably wouldn't be appropriate for, um, for a voluntary activity. But I think, you know, the carrot approach and, you know, perhaps, you know, lauding the ones who do would be, um, would be interesting. I mean, that, that's an interesting point you make there, Margaret, about it being voluntary, isn't it? Because that's one of the things that we've been talking about. And I know that PSIG are, are, um, are, are, are discussing is about whether we might be able to get that code of practice onto a statutory footing, which you can see in this context, there would be some potentially some advantage to that. Yeah, I mean the, the fact that um, the, the regulator is is now strongly um, encouraging people to follow the code um, is actually very helpful. Um, at the end of the day, you know, obviously having it as a as a, a requirement, as a you know, with a statutory um, backing, would mean that people would do it because they yes. have no choice. Um, and ultimately, I, I suspect that's where we may well be. But um, the, the beauty of the code is. Um, as it is at the moment, as it's written by the industry, um, and it, it it can keep up to date because it it is actually down to the industry to record what they see um, to some um, extent. So so it does keep it keep it fresh and and keep it up mm-hmm. to date. But we need a little bit more welly um, to try and make sure that people are firstly aware of it. We've got no budget um, whatsoever, so so we do need help to promote good practice and the regulator is helping with that. Margaret, um, we've heard you talking about the PCIG code. Um, is there any news on that? Is it going to be updated? Yes, we're we're working on um, an update at the moment. It's uh, it's been in its current form since uh, June 2019, um, and as we've just been discussing, there's lots of um, activity going on. So, so what we're doing is we're um, tightening up some of the processes and simplifying reporting, which I think is is quite important. But covering some new areas like warning members about the risks on drawdown. But the biggest change, um, I think. People will see is in the structure itself um, because we're trying to simplify it. We're aware that it's well over 100 pages, um, and that's quite difficult to follow. So we're um, we're actually going to crunch it down into a practitioner guide, which tells people very you know easily this is what you do, um, and a technical guide to explain um, scams and what they're all about, and also a resource pack with templates and letters. Um, so we hope that'll make it much easier to read and importantly much easier to use um, and we're targeting publication in March uh, but we're also aware that there's a, a new pension schemes act which we'll need to um, put in so there'll probably be another version pretty um, quickly um, after the summer. Where could listeners see a copy of the code? Yeah, they can see a copy of the draft um, code, but they can see a copy of the, the code itself. It's it's mentioned um, and referred to in TPR guidance, um, and it's also available on our um, website. We've mentioned uh, Project Bloom, the multi-agency uh, group that includes TPR, the FCA, and another other players. Is there anything, Nicola, that you think could be done there that would be able to make it easier for them to do their work in combating scams? 
Yeah, so we've we've written to the Work and Pension Select Committee um, answering some of their questions around Project Bloom. And one of the things that um, stands out for me is that, well, first of all, Project Bloom is just is a voluntary um, task force. So it's a multi-agency task force. Lots of agencies who have an interest in combating pension scams come together in Project Bloom to coordinate our efforts, improve efficiency and um, ensure that we are as effective as we can be. But um, we could, it could be put on a statutory footing. And I do think that that is something that is worth considering. So that, for example, could well mean that it would have dedicated funding. At the moment, it doesn't have any separate funding at all. It is all done by agencies putting their own resource in. And I think um, putting the, um, Bloom onto a statutory funding, onto a statutory basis with some funding, either that could be through a levy, might be an industry levy, or it might be government backing, you know, that's, that's also possible, could significantly improve the effectiveness of Project Bloom. I think that would, that would go a long way. Nicola, um, do you have any message to scammers that might potentially be listening in or yeah, I do, actually. And it would be, first of all, we're doing our very best through our education to ensure that people don't hand their money over to you as a scammer, because prevention is much better than cure. But look, if you are out there in the business of pension scamming, you need to know that we are very active in this area. So when I say we, Project Bloom is very active. And just in uh, at TPR, we have seven investigations running at the moment. We're looking into 52 different suspected pension scam schemes. We've got 38 suspects uh, in our sites and we think we're, we're looking at losses of at least 55 million that have been handed over there. So we have lots of ongoing investigations and just in case any of our pension scammers are thinking they might hop on a plane and flee the jurisdiction, we're also uh, exercising our extradition uh, powers as well. We are talking to police forces overseas about extraditing. So uh, my message would be probably find something else to do um, because uh, we are ensuring through Project Bloom that we're going to do absolutely everything we can to stop those pension scammers, to make sure they go to prison and to take back their ill-gotten gains. It sounds as if we're trying to make sure that savers aren't seen as easy prey for these scammers and perhaps we'll be seeing more of them in court and finally punished for what they've done. Exactly, couldn't have put it better myself. <laughs> we've, we've managed to spend quite a lot of time talking about pension scams today and unfortunately we've come to the end of the time we've, we've got left. So I'd like to take the opportunity to say thank you, Margaret, very much for, for joining us today and Nicola for uh, your, your comments. Anyone who wants more information on how to join our pledge to combat pension scams should visit TPR's website where they can find all the details.